0: The Labor Department has revived an old idea. Salaried private sector employees who work overtime, well, you can't just compensate them with pizza. A rule proposed last week would mandate overtime for people making up to $55,000 a year. The current ceiling is $35,000. Here with the federal contractor view of this proposed rule, the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, I'm guessing probably that you guys don't feel like this is the best rule ever proposed.
1: Well, thanks, Tom, so much for having me. You know, we go back to the old adage, everything old is new again. This Department of Labor proposed rule on overtime protection really does harken back to an Obama-era attempt to do something similar. Back then, towards the end of President Obama's tenure, there was an attempt to double the ceiling for the amount by which the workers could be compensated. At that point, it was $23,000 a year the threshold, and they were trying to make it into the 40s. This, as you mentioned, is about $20,000 additional to where it is today. $55,000 is the threshold, and contractors are worried about this. It's not that they are against overtime. That's not the point at all. Workers should be compensated for the work that they do in more than just pizza. That said, when... Contracts are negotiated between the federal government and the private sector. They are tied into specific labor rates. And PSC, as you know, tracks government services contractors. And the backbone of our industry is making sure that we have a highly skilled, knowledgeable, and dedicated workforce. So we do want to compensate them adequately, but we are tied to whatever is allowable in the contract for labor rates. This proposed rule doesn't contemplate what impact this will have on government contractors. So you can be sure that PSC will be commenting.
0: Yes, I mean, it affects any private sector employer. It's common, right, for a contractor or a company to say, you know what, this software project, this integration project, we got to deliver this Wednesday under the contract, but we have work that will take us till Thursday, all hands on. We're going to get this done no matter how long it takes. Now those people, a lot of them, would be getting overtime if this goes through.
1: That's exactly right. And when you're working on a fixed price contract, for example, you don't have a lot of leeway as a company to compensate the employees out of the existing pool of funds that was negotiated during the contract. And so you are taking it, therefore, out of overhead or you're taking it out of other elements of your business. Again, services contractors really do want to compensate their workers adequately. And again, in more than just pizza and beer. That said, you know, we'll be going back to the Department of Labor with some considerations for them about how this will impact government contractors. And at the end of the day, the capabilities that the government receives and what happens on that front.
0: And even in cost plus contracts, the government could challenge costs. What's the old poster you used to see? Lack of planning on your part doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. Your overtime is your problem. You said you'd deliver it then. This is what your rates and the costs are that you quoted. They could challenge a company and say, well, these overtime costs are not allowable costs.
1: That's exactly right. And I think at the end of the day, this has to be an iterative conversation between contracting officers and the contractors themselves to talk about what impact this particular overtime protections rule will have on contractors and the work that they perform. I do know that the government would like to see a robust industrial base to support the government missions that are performed. That said, there has to be a conversation about this particular rule, as there was years ago when this came up before. I will note that This rule was challenged in court and a federal judge did rule that the Department of Labor exceeded its authority. So we will be watching also the court system closely.
0: Yeah, interesting. They were knocked down once, but they're back again. It's like remember those toys we had as a kid—a clown punching Weevil. bag. You'd punch <laughs> or weevils it.
1: that wobble but don't fall down. <laughs> you know, right?
0: Pop up again. <laughs> Wait a minute! I thought I had the knockout blow there. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She is executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And then Oasis. Here we are at the midnight hour for Oasis. And now there are amendments to the RFP, and no extension on modifying. What's going on?
1: There are concerns within the government contract community about OASIS Plus. And that is to say, there were at least two amendments that have come out, one in early July and one in mid-August, that fundamentally would have changed some companies' approaches to their proposals. And more recently, GSA released answers to some questions that were posed, and those were released on August 29th, so just last week. The due date for proposals is September 13th, but some of the answers that GSA provided and some of the requirements in the new amendments really do change contractors' approaches, whether it's teaming arrangements, etc. One piece, and I'd like to talk more to the government counterparts about this, is that teaming arrangements do take weeks, if not months, to negotiate. And if you change the rules of the game this close to the end of the solicitation period, you might have to compromise on the due diligence. You know, you want to get a new partner on your proposal. You do need to scrub their financials. You need to scrub what they bring to the table, etc. Lawyers are involved, a lot of legal paperwork. And I just don't think with releasing Q&As this close to the due date, the GSA is doing anyone any favors in terms of having to renegotiate those agreements.
0: Yes, the uh, answers and all of this were released on August 29th, the Q&A that you have to fill out. And then the proposal deadline is still September 13th for those that want to bid on OASIS, which has been delayed by protests for quite a while here.
1: Well, there have been changes when the court system ruled on other vehicles, you know, they had to see how those rulings might apply to Oasis Plus. So this has been going on for quite a while in development. That said, PSE does take seriously some of the changes that have come down the pike recently and has asked GSA to consider extending the due date for one more month until October 13th, which is a Friday next month. You know, our members would love more time, but to keep it as close to on track as possible, we've asked for a 30 day extension.
0: All right. In the meantime, the Senate is back in town. Next week, the House comes back to town. And here we go with the budget talks, and we know the ramifications of what's happening and what's not happening. But if there is a budget, it's assuming a rate of inflation that is way below reality, and that's got contractors concerned.
1: You know, in the D.C.-based parlor game of what will Congress do in September, I'm not one to put any bets on the table. I would say one area that we are tracking very, very closely is we note that the president's budget, when it came across from the White House earlier this year, had a 2.4 percent inflation rate built in. Unfortunately, our country still hasn't recovered from the higher than expected inflation of last year. It did trickle over into this year. And if you just look at, you know, we look at various indices, but one that we take very seriously is the personal consumption expenditure and the six-month trimmed PCE price index. That comes out of the Department of Commerce and excluding food and energy, which are known to be volatile, that number for July was 4.2%. So again, that's a significant departure from the 2.4% that was included in the president's budget. So as we look forward to seeing what the Hill is considering for FY24, we really need to unpack, you know, if, if you're keeping the budget the funding levels a certain level. What are you giving up because of inflation? And I want to make sure that we are not cutting into muscle, that it is really just fat we are trimming um, should it be found, but that we're not eating into what exactly the, the American people require of their government.
0: And now if your cost accountants work overtime to figure all of that out, then you have <laughs> to pay them overtime. So it kind of feeds on itself, doesn't it?
1: There is that piece of it. I would note, you know, the unexpected part of what happened this year is, you know, we had that debt limit crisis and we had this Fiscal Responsibility Act of of 2023 come out. And it really does impact what the Hill is discussing for the FY24 appropriations bills. It really remains to be seen what impact that Fiscal Responsibility Act will have on any of this conversation.
0: Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Tom.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to The Federal Drive on your overtime. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure, mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Aniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted? the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union Uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four
2: decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff. That always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that
2: done. As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not just nice to have, we rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible and with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right, treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader.
2: And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. So you, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career?
3: I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm going to have to elaborate on two, if that's okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it, bad enough. If you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today?
3: It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when, when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now.